0: Hi everyone, the reading this week is from Romans chapter 10. We are going to be reading from verses 14 to 21. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? How can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. But not all the Israelites accepted the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word about Christ. But I ask, did they not hear? Of course they did. Their voice has gone out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. Again I ask, did Israel not understand? First Moses says, I will make you envious by those who are not a nation. I'll make you angry by a nation that has no understanding. And Isaiah boldly says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. But concerning Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people.
1: Well, good evening, UniChurch. Uh, it's good to be with you tonight. If you don't already know me, my name's Jacob. I work as a trainee here at St. Jude's, um, and I've been coming to UniChurch uh, for just over four years. A little bit about me, I did a Bachelor of Arts uh, over at Melbourne Uni a couple of years ago. I'm uh, married to my wife, Diana, um, and I'm a really, big fan of Star Wars. Those three things are in no particular order. (laughs) But like I say, I I do really love Star Wars. If you know me, you know this to be true. If you don't, you'll have to take my word for it. I have literal crates of Star Wars Lego at my parents' house. My 18th birthday was watching The Force Awakens at IMAX, uh, and I watched it seven more times before it left the theaters. (laughs) I love Star Wars. Uh, it's, It's the best. I didn't always think that, though. When I when I first watched Star Wars, uh, as a five-year-old, I was terrified, uh, mostly because I didn't understand how movies worked, especially when someone died on screen. I thought someone was really being killed. I remember my childish logic when something like, well, if they're gonna kill someone, it's probably someone who deserves it. Maybe a, a criminal who's done something really bad, that would make sense. It's pretty ridiculous, but that's actually what I thought was going on. It's it's no wonder I was so scared. I thought I was witnessing execution footage. (laughs) But over time, I I learned how movies were made, special effects are a thing, and I grew in my understanding to the point where I could now follow what was happening and enjoy the film. And then I grew further in my understanding. Some might say too far. I would say not enough. But now, I might see an iconic scene from the film, and where as a kid I would have been like, oh, it's Luke Skywalker using a lightsaber for the first time. Now I see it and I think, oh, it's Luke Skywalker using a lightsaber for the first time, a lightsaber that belonged to his father, Anakin Skywalker, and was constructed sometime between the first battle of Geonosis and the battle for Christophsis, (laughs) built from a kyber crystal from the ice cage." You get the picture. I love Star Wars. And the more I've come to know about, appreciate and understand it, the more I've loved it. And and this is true for anything. When there's something truly good and and worthy of our love, the more we learn about it, the better we understand it, the deeper our love will be. It's the same with God. The more we learn about him, the, the better we understand him, the deeper our love for him will be. Let's keep this in our minds as we go through tonight's passage. Romans can sometimes be pretty dense, and we're gonna be thinking about some big ideas tonight. But we aren't just thinking about them for their own sake or for some academic exercise. We're grappling with them so we can understand them, and through understanding, grow in our love for God. This can be hard. Sometimes these big ideas can be confusing or scary, just like five-year-old Jacob who thought he was watching execution footage. But once we overcome that initial tension and understand what's going on, these ideas can be a great comfort and not a great burden. That's my hope for us tonight. So as we've heard in the last couple of weeks, the big question Paul's trying to answer in Romans nine to 10 is, why aren't all of Israel saved? The answer we heard through Alex and Sam from chapter nine is God's election. God chooses some, not all, And those he chooses are saved. And last week, John took us through the start of Romans 10 and explained how Israel thought they were pursuing relationship with God through the law, when in reality, they needed to pursue relationship with God through Christ, which the law was pointing to. Which brings us to our passage. So here's how we're going to go through things tonight. We're going to start with verses 14 and 15 and dig into them a bit. These verses are relatively straightforward, but they're the logical foundation which Paul builds his whole argument on in this passage. So we'll just make sure we we really understand what's going on there before before taking it further. Then before we actually continue with Paul and his argument to the end of the passage, we're gonna stop and just wrestle with some of the implications from what Paul's saying, those, those big ideas I mentioned before. And then with the foundations understood, the implications clarified, We're going to continue through to the end of the passage and see how Paul goes about answering the question, why aren't all of Israel saved? So number one, the foundations of the argument. Number two, some implications from the argument. And then number three, the conclusion of the argument. Let's get into it. So like we mentioned, verses 14 to 15 are pretty straightforward. They're a bunch of statements or technically rhetorical questions which logically flow into each other to ultimately show the flow of events that leads to salvation. This, then this, then this. Technically, the flow actually begins in verse 13, so let's go there first and read our verses. So from verse 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. So basically, Paul is constructing a chain with a series of essential links that ends at salvation. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But that starts with sending then preaching, hearing, believing, calling And then finally, salvation. It it makes sense. But before we jump to any conclusions, we need to make sure we don't take it out of its context. Paul doesn't ask how can people call on the one they have not believed in. He asks how can they call on the one they have not believed in. He's not talking about people in general. He's talking about a specific group of people. And the context from chapters 9 and 10 so far, as well as the name drop in verse 16, tells us this people is Israel so someone is sent then they preach people hear them preaching believe what they heard call upon the one who they heard about and are saved we get the logic but we have to remember that the context for this logic is Israel so there are two points I want to make about these verses point number one these verses aren't about us they're about Israel these verses aren't about us they're about Israel when Paul talks about sending and preaching, he isn't talking about us or giving us a direct command. The point of these verses is to understand the process by which salvation was brought to Israel. The sending, preaching idea here is that of heralding, of first announcing. Disciples, apostles, even Jesus himself were sent and preached, people heard, and from there if they believe and call upon the name of the Lord they will be saved. That's That's the process these verses are describing. So point number one, these verses aren't about us, they're about Israel. Point number two, these verses are about us, because the process of salvation is still the same today. These verses are about us, because the process of salvation is still the same today. While the direct application of these verses is about Israel, the implications and principles of these verses are laden with meaning for us because the means by which God pulls people from death to life, from darkness into the light, is still the same today. He does it through the preaching of his gospel. So let's get this straight. right? We, we want salvation. We want it for ourselves and for the people we love. We long for an end to sickness, an end to death, an end to fear and to be able to exist in a perfect relationship with each other, with the world, and with God. And as we've read, salvation is a chain that starts with sending and preaching. Are we sent? Yes. We know from the Great Commission, and we heard from Sam a few weeks ago, that Jesus' followers are called to make disciples of all nations. We are given a purpose and told to fulfill it. We are sent. Are we called to preach? Yes. When I say preach, I don't mean to prepare a full sermon, that there is a time and a place for that. I just mean what it says in the dictionary, to earnestly advocate or to teach. That is something we can do. When we have something in our lives that we feel strongly about, something we love, we will naturally do this. We will earnestly advocate and teach. I'm an earnest advocate for fantasy author Brandon Sanderson and the crowning jewel of his literary career, the Stormlight Archives. When I was writing the sermon, I actually had to stop myself from including a miniature essay trying to convince you to read the books. It's not the point, Jacob. You're not here to try and get them to read your favorite series. But if you're interested, do talk to me afterwards. And anyway, give me the opportunity and I will earnestly advocate these books because I love them. It should be the same with Jesus our love for him should naturally overflow into a desire to share him with those around us yeah that's not always the case it is for some of us without naming names there are some people here who seem to share jesus as easily as breathing which is incredible but but for me and i suspect for a lot of you it's not quite that natural And there are a number of possible reasons for that, some of which we heard in that video earlier. Fear of awkwardness, not feeling like we know what to say. Maybe we know in our heads that sharing the gospel is a good thing to do. We understand it, but we just don't feel it. And more often than that, we don't do it. Now, this isn't a guilt trip. The point is not to say that not sharing the gospel means you don't love God enough. The truth is, none of us can love God enough for who he is and what he's done. But we can love God more. We can grow in our love for God. Like Like I mentioned at the start, we're about to dive into some big ideas, but remember, we're not diving into them for their own sake. We're doing it so we can better understand God and grow in our love for him. And as our love grows it will more naturally overflow into our earnestly advocating for and teaching about Jesus. All right, quick recap. Verses 14 to 15, Paul constructs a chain of events showing how we get from sending through to salvation. These verses aren't about us, they're about Israel, which we'll get into later. These verses are about us because God still saves people in the same way. We are called to be earnest advocates for Jesus. Now some of you might have noticed, but there is a part of verse 15 that we haven't actually touched on yet, Uh, the second half of the verse, a quote from Isaiah 52, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. We get a bit of an implication from this line about what Paul's focus is here. We just talked about the importance of preaching and, and, and earnestly advocating, but we talked about it as an implication or a principle to take from the passage and not what Paul is explicitly saying. In fact, this line I think shows us that the preaching and sending elements of the salvation chain aren't Paul's focus. He just takes them as a given. He's not talking about the sending of the good news, but the receiving. How people, specifically the people of Israel, respond to the gospel. And now we're in verse 16. But not all the Israelites accepted the good news. Now this is not a new idea This premise has already been established in Romans and even prophesied in the Old Testament. The very next sentence says, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? So this is the situation. Not all the Israelites have accepted the good news. And Paul's trying to investigate why. Why didn't all the Israelites accept the good news? So to do this, Paul's going to take the salvation chain he built in verses 14 to 15, which we've just spent a bit of time understanding, and he's going to go through the chain to work out which of the links is faulty. Not all Israel is saved, so where did the salvation chain break? What went wrong? Spoiler alert, disobedience. Paul's claim from this passage is that Israel's disobedience is the reason not all of them were saved. I say spoiler alert, this isn't really a spoiler. We got this from John in the sermon last week. Chapter 10, verse 3, Since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Disobedience. And we can see pretty clearly that this is where Paul's argument lands in verse 21. Disobedience. Don't take my word for it. We are going to go through the rest of the passage and actually follow Paul's argument to see how he gets there. But but for now, I want us to spend a couple of minutes grappling with a pretty big implication from this claim. Paul's claiming that the reason not all Israel was saved was their disobedience. They refused to accept the gospel, and so they weren't saved. Here's the issue. In chapter nine, He claimed that the reason not all Israel was saved was God's election. God chose some and not others, and so they weren't saved. So which is it? Israel's disobedience or God's election? Human responsibility or divine sovereignty? Yes. Yes, it is. It's both of them at the same time. And this is uncomfortable because there seems to be a paradox. If God chooses who will be saved and is sovereign over our choices, how can we be held responsible for our actions? A good question, uh, and one Paul talks about in chapter 9, but but this, this tension isn't actually a paradox. There isn't actually anything contradictory here. Because a paradox is where you have two things which are fundamentally contradictory, like a square circle, or a med student with a social life, or an employed arts graduate, paradoxes. For our purposes we'll go with the square circle, it might ruffle a few less feathers. So a square circle is impossible. The reason we know this is because we can explain in its entirety what a square is, and we can explain in its entirety what a circle is, and we know that we can't have a square circle. A square has four sides, a circle has one, and something can't have both one and four sides, so it's contradictory, a paradox. Here's a question. Can we explain God's sovereignty in its entirety? We can explain it in principle, It means God is the supreme authority, all things under his control. But can we explain that fully? Can we understand it? No. Not at all. We can accept it, but we can't wrap our heads around it. We can barely wrap our heads around our own responsibility. Because of that, we can't actually say that divine sovereignty contradicts human responsibility to do that we need to be able to say well, here are all the facets and functions of divine sovereignty and the same for human responsibility and here's how they contradict each other. Instead we can only say "Well, here's the principle of divine sovereignty and the same for human responsibility and there seems to maybe be a contradiction but we have no way to prove it. Friends can I put to you that this discomfort and tension that we feel when we, when we talk about these ideas is not a symptom of contradiction but of transcendence. It's not a symptom of contradiction but of transcendence. God is beyond what we could ever hope to understand, beyond our space, beyond our time. And so when he interacts with humanity, there are going to be things we don't understand, mysteries that haven't been revealed to us and that's okay that's that's good the god of the universe is beyond human comprehension and that that makes his decisions to act in human history that much more incredible the the fact that he pays us any attention at all is mind-blowing the transcendent creator became a human being and sacrificed himself for you The more transcendent we realize God is, the more beautiful the gospel becomes. Now this doesn't alleviate every discomfort and answer every question. And if you still have questions, keep asking them. Just remember this isn't an abstract thought exercise which we do for its own sake. We wrestle with these ideas so we can understand them. And we understand them so we can love God more. All right, I know that spun off a little bit from the passage, but stay with me, we're up to the very last section. So we've talked about the foundation of Paul's argument, the implications of the argument, and now we're going to look at the conclusion of Paul's argument, how he takes the salvation chain and goes through it bit by bit to determine for sure that disobedience was the weak link. Let's take a look. Verse 17 uh, is a kind of narrowing down of the original chain so that we're only dealing with the relevant bits. On one end, we have calling and salvation, but both of those things come after belief and Israel hasn't believed, so we don't need to worry about those. And on the other end of the chain, we have sending and preaching, but like we talked about earlier, Paul's just taking that as a given that people have been sent and preached, which they have, so we can get rid of that. Now all that we're left with from the original chain is hearing and believing, which is what we have in verse 17. Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message and the message is heard through the word about Christ. You hear the word about Christ and you have faith. You hear and you believe. It's the same idea. And we know the Israelites didn't believe, so all we're left with is hearing. And that leads to the logical question which Paul asks in verse 18, did they not hear? Answer, of course they did. Their voice has gone out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. Now when Paul says this, he isn't claiming that literally the whole world has heard the gospel. He's quoting from Psalm 19, which in its context is talking about the glory of God being declared by the cosmos and is applying that language to the spread of the gospel in his context. He's using a well-known, impactful piece of cultural language to speak about a particular situation. It's kind of like, and I say this with some hesitation, a meme. <laughs> a well-known, impactful piece of cultural language used to speak about a particular situation. It's not literally what happened, but it's communicating the same point. People have been sent, the word about Christ has been preached everywhere, so of course Israel has heard, they just haven't obeyed. Now we know that Paul's argument is going to land on Israel's disobedience, but for now let's give them the benefit of the doubt. Sure they heard the gospel, maybe they just didn't understand it. Or From verse 19, again I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you envious by those who are not a nation. I will make you angry by a nation that has no understanding. And Isaiah boldly says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. Okay, thanks Paul, but you haven't answered your question. You asked whether Israel understood and then you gave us two quotes about God's plan to reveal himself to the Gentiles. To us, this doesn't seem like a valid answer, but to Paul, it absolutely was. This is an important Bible reading principle to be aware of, really just for the New Testament, but whenever there is a quotation from the Old Testament, the author, in this case Paul, is not wanting us to just read the specific line they've included, though that is important, but they're wanting us to bring to mind that entire section of scripture and its surrounding context. So whenever a New Testament writer includes a line from the Old Testament, they're activating that entire section of scripture not just that one line. So these two lines from Deuteronomy and Isaiah are less like quotations and more like hyperlinks in a Wikipedia article. You click them, you learn additional information that's relevant to the previous page. Luckily for all of us these two links are purple and not blue since I've already clicked and done the pre-reading so we don't need to extend the sermon by an hour as we trawl through multiple chapters of the Old Testament. So what extra info do we get? Well, the context of both references are are different, but also very similar. The line from Moses is a promise and the line from Isaiah is a prophecy, but in their original context, both come about as a direct result of Israel's willful disobedience and their rejection of what God has told them. Israel made an active decision to turn away from God and as a result, God has turned to the Gentiles. Now this brings up a lot of ideas and questions but we're not going to get into them now. The next chapter and the next few sermons are going to be dealing with all of that. This is laying the foundation from some ideas that Paul is about to build on in chapter 11. We still have our own question we're trying to answer, did Israel not understand? The answer, Gentile inclusion, specifically Gentile inclusion that has come about As a result of Israel's deliberate, direct, premeditated rejection of God and his message. So people were sent. People preached. Israel heard. They even understood. But did they obey? Did they believe? This is where the chain breaks. This is where it all falls through. A series of events that ends with salvation from sickness, decay, and death is snapped and now ends with a broken link of faithlessness and disbelief. This is where Paul lands in verse 21. Concerning Israel, he, Isaiah, says, All day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. Israel is disobeyed. They've been faithless and stubborn, and all the while God is standing there, holding out his hands like a father, longing for his son to come home. Our our culture seems to have a bit of an obsession with nostalgia especially people our age. I don't know if you've seen those Facebook pages before which post things like, remember this show we used to watch or this snack we used to eat or who else had these crayons in primary school? Uh, And for a lot of people, it's because childhood, or at least the memory of it, feels so much better, nicer, safer than life now. And that's not always true. For some of us here, childhood might have been none of those things. But I think for culture more broadly, this is why. Life sucks. The world is broken. Everyone you love will die. So we look for a vicarious sense of safety and warmth in a younger version of ourselves. When happiness and peace seemed so much easier to come by. When anything we could want was just provided for us. Food, clothes, shelter and so much more. And we were still small enough to be picked up and held. But there's a longing we have for that childlike experience. Oblivious to evil, all of our needs met, just enjoying the world as it is. So people live their lives looking back, always stressed, never content, wishing things were like they used to be until life ends. That's no way to live. It's not life and life to the full like Jesus offers. Friends, the good news is that we don't have to look back and try and grasp at the safety and comfort that was. We can look up and receive the safety and comfort that is and will be forever and ever. Let's just sit with this for a bit. Paul's taken us on a whiplash tour of the Old Testament through Psalms, Pentateuch, and prophets with some really complex ideas, but he ends it with this simple yet vivid image of a dad who just wants his kids to be safe. I can't help but bring to mind Jesus coming into Jerusalem a week before he was killed, weeping as he did so. And when he was teaching in the city, he said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were not willing. This is what God is like. These passages are about Israel specifically, yes, but this is God's character. He loves us. He loves us more deeply than we could ever comprehend. We are children before him, and he longs to pick us up in the best hug you've ever had, to shelter us under his wing when nothing could ever hurt us. Jesus died to pay for your mistakes. And when we accept that, when we believe that, we are adopted into God's family, with the best older brother you could ever want, and a dad who loves you, protects you, and provides for your every need. The desires of nostalgia are fully satisfied in this. The joy and safety and security of childhood, whether you had it or not, is made perfect in Christ. And it's on offer to you. That's the gospel. That's the message of salvation, which Israel rejected. Don't make the same mistake. Don't break the chain. We're here. The word is being preached. You've heard it. Now all that's left is for you to believe. Life with God as your father is life to the full. And if you do believe, remember... God is your father. He's not some mysterious being or or cosmic force. He's our dad. He loves you, so love him back. Listen to him. Obey him. He knows what's best for you. Paul ends this chapter with an image of sadness, yes, but also hope. Hope for Israel and hope for us. When we understand that God is our father, we love him more. When we understand that God is transcendent, that he is sovereign, we love him more. And the more we love him, the more easily that love will overflow into earnest advocacy for the message of the gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for adopting us as your children through the death and resurrection of your Son. Help us to understand more deeply what that means and love you for it. We stand in awe of your transcendence and sovereignty and we rest in the comfort that brings us. Help us to know these truths in richer ways and love you for it. We ask that through your spirit, our love for you and for the people in our lives would spur us on to share the good news so that they too might know the joy of being your children. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.